Okay, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, so I'm going to pray, but if you've got your Bibles, uh, or you can either turn them on, if you have them on the phone, or we're going to look at John uh, chapter 16 today. Whoops, nobody noticed, Becky, don't worry. It's fine. <laughs> So, um, yeah, we just uh, love meeting you guys. I know some of you already. Uh, some of you are local, so I know some of you because we live in Viridian. Uh, some of you are uh, friends that we've known for a long time that are in this city. Um, some of you I sail with. Um, so I know most of you guys, but not everybody. And uh, you're probably thinking, is this some kind of British invasion? It's not. I promise you, most of our leaders are American. Uh, only some of them are especially anointed like me. So, But we're uh, really pleased to be here. Um, hopefully we'll have a great time and you'll enjoy everything that we do. So today, my uh, main job, uh, my role today is to introduce kind of the theme that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks um, I'm not going to be sharing kind of vision of what the church is going to be doing, um, but we will be doing that over the next few weeks. Today, I'm really just going to be sharing the heart behind why we will do and why we hope to do what we're going to do. So there's one question, if you like, that will be driving us, and uh, today I'm going to explain that, that one question to you. So um, we're going to read from, from the Bible, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get going. So... Um, let's just open our Bibles at John 16. It's a little bit of a long passage actually this morning, but I'll read it to you. It says this. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, then after a little while you're going to see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because... Um, her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into this world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Okay, so one of my questions when I tend to read the Bible is um, why? It's, it's the first thing that comes to me. And one of the questions that comes to me in this passage is why was the disciples' joy not complete when they were spending all that time with Jesus? Because most of us, if we're Christians, I'm not presuming everybody is in this room, but if we're Christians, we're probably thinking, or I am at least, wow, I'd be like over the moon if I got to be with Jesus every day. That'd be fantastic. But actual fact, their joy wasn't complete. Can it be you're a Christian and you're not joyful? Can it be you're a Christian and not joyful? Well, I would say without a shadow of a doubt, yes. Um, I became a Christian when I was 14. So I was born with asthma and eczema. And when I was um, 13 years old, the eczema, which is a kind of skin disease, uh, went really, really bad. And I just, sounds horrible, but I had yellow pus all over my arms and all down the back of my legs. 
And when I took my bandages off, my, my skin used to peel off. It was that bad. So my mum, who's no longer with us, uh, she was a nurse and we went to see a specialist and they said it would take months for this to go away. Sometimes I'd have to lie in a bath at night to soak the bandages so the skin wouldn't peel off as much. And I remember a couple of nights asking my mum to tie me to the bed so I wouldn't scratch anymore. So it was really bad. Um, but when I was at school, there was a teacher and who was a Christian and uh, he was advertising this kind of um, what I now know was like a tent crusade. So there was this big meeting where people were meeting for a week and talking about Jesus. A bit like this, but more people and just as weird in my mind when I was 13 years old. So I got there and it was very strange. People were singing in a tent. People had their arms raised up. It was really, really weird. And the reason I was there was because even though I didn't believe in God, um, there were rumors coming back from this tent from the boys in my school who weren't Christians that they'd seen people get healed in this tent. So, I, so somebody said to me, Paul, you're practically a cripple. Why don't you go? Which was kind of true, I thought. So I went on this particular day. I, I got there and um, essentially I heard the message. I didn't fully understand, but I knew something resonated within me. And then the, the preacher tricked me. I'm not going to do this, but this is what he did. He said, if you want to find out more about Jesus, say this prayer. So I closed my eyes and I said the prayer. I thought, I want to find out. So I closed my prayed. And he said, now, if you're, if you're praying, I'd like you to put your hand in the air, which I thought, that's a little bit weird. So I thought, well, okay, I'll go with it. So I put my hand in the air. And then he said, if you've got your hand in your air, we'd like you to stand. And I remember thinking, this is the last thing I'm going to do. And this is it. So I stood. And then he finally said, if you're stood, we'd like to torture you. Please come to the back where we'd love to torture you. And no word of a lie, I thought, I'm not going. But there was quite a cute blonde I'd had my eye on all during the service. And she went forward. And just then I felt God call me. It was really strange. <laughs> so I kind of went forward. And they kind of prayed for me and did this whole thing. And, and if you're a Christian, you kind of know the routine of what they kind of do. Um, I kind of became a Christian. And... Um, and then what happened was I later prayed. I found out I didn't need to go to a priest. I could pray directly to, to God, and, and God healed me. And um, within about nine days, the skin disease went. It was, it was incredible. Um, but then what happened was I got to about 18 years old, and my beliefs stayed the same, but I wanted to do my own thing. So I left home. I stopped going to church, stopped reading my Bible, stopped praying. Ended up in this large house. There were four apartments there was me and a backslidden Christian, so like me, like two people who believed in God but weren't following God. Opposite us, there were three very rich students. Above them was a Jehovah's Witness and a hippie. And above me and my friend were three anarchists and a ferret. And it was this crazy world I was in for about six months. And the, the anarchists were militant vegetarians. So they would go out and they would spray meat means murder on butcher shops and put glue in the locks. And we had all these kind of weird arguments about the meaning of life. And bizarrely, I tried to convert them to Christianity, even though I wasn't following Jesus at the time myself. And I remember thinking to myself, I've never been more miserable in my life. And yet my beliefs were the same. I still believed. Uh, if, you, if you'd asked me, I'd try and convert you to Christianity. But I wasn't following Jesus. Can you be miserable? Yeah. So... So the word of God says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. What does that actually mean? And where does, where does this joy come from? So I believe this. It's my personal belief. Uh, we often hear people saying, Christians say this all the time, there's a God-shaped hole in you that only God can fill. Have you heard that? Yeah, before there's a God-shaped. I believe this. That in this life, there's a God-shaped hole in you that even God can't fill. This is where you walk out. Just This is the bit. 
why do I say that? Because Ecclesiastes says this. Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There's eternity in us. There are things that God has put in us that will only be fulfilled in eternity. And on the website we say this, and I say it all the time, the reason you exist, I believe, is because God did not have anyone exactly like you. And he wanted someone exactly like you. So he got what he wanted, and it was you. There's something different about the way you think. There's something different about your gifts. There's something different about your abilities. There's something different about you that makes you unique, and that's what God wanted. But some of those things will only be fulfilled in eternity. And that's what I want to very briefly kind of look at uh, this morning, that joy comes when we align ourselves to Jesus' dream, not when we try and force him to make our dreams come true. So I'm going to use a diagram over the next few weeks, and it's not just me speaking, Bob will be speaking, and, and uh, uh, Becky will be speaking, others will be speaking, but um, it seems to me that God calls us. If you're a Christian, you, you, there'll be probably a time when you felt God speaking to you and God calling you. But what does that look like? Why do we call ourselves Saints Church? Uh, we could say we're a Christian church, but the word Christian was only used three times in the New Testament. Um, more than that, people, Christians, call themselves followers of the way, probably about five times in the New Testament. But 62 times in the New Testament, Christians didn't refer to themselves as Christians, but as saints. Not as in, it means now, like a holy one now, but in the sense of saints means someone who's separated for a purpose. Separated for God for a purpose. God calls us. But what does that look like when God calls us? And why is Jesus calling us? I want to suggest one of the best ways of finding that out is looking at where Jesus went to find the disciples. So I want to show you a little map. Um, Jesus, as we know, was born in Bethlehem. Um, this seems to have stopped working. There we go. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is near Jerusalem. But when uh, Jesus was born, his family took him, of course, to a place called Nazareth, which is here. Now, Nazareth, at the time of Jesus, had eight to ten extended families. There was around about 300 people in Nazareth at the time of Jesus. Now, if Jesus was looking for people just like him, or Jesus was looking for best friends, he would have got his disciples, <laughs> he would have got his disciples from Nazareth. But he didn't do that at all. Um, nearby Nazareth was a place called Sephorus or Zipporah. This place was huge. It was about 25,000 to 30,000 people at the time of Jesus. In this place, it was amazing. We think that um, historical records outside of the Bible um, make us think that Jesus' um, grandparents were from Sephorus. So in this place, what you've got is some interesting things. You've got a lot of politicians... This is a governmental center, lots of admin, lots of money. Jesus recruits some of his financial supporters from this city. In this city, you have um, actors. Um, Jesus is the only person in the New Testament who talks about the hypocrites. The hypocrites were actors who came from this place. They were in a theater. Um, this place was a, a bustling city. It's where Jesus probably worked. It was about a 45-minute walk from Nazareth. There was probably no work for him in Nazareth. He probably went to Sephora to work. He has lots of connections with this city that you see if you study the Word of God. But if Jesus wanted an actor, he would have gone there. If he wanted actors, if he wanted like celebrities to promote his 
gospel, this is the place he would have gone. If he wanted business people to promote his gospel, this is the place he would have gone. He didn't choose any disciples from here at all. The next place is a place called Beth Shan. This had um, a university and it also had a sports theater. If Jesus wanted a super cool athlete, he would have gone there. If Jesus wanted um, some kind of really intelligent professors to spread his gospel, this is the place he went. But he didn't. He went somewhere else. And when you figure out why he went there, it gives us an insight into what God's calling us to. Jesus went to a place that's called commonly now the Orthodox Triangle. And it's basically a collection of three small villages. Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Jesus gets all his disciples, bar one, from this place. Why? Why does he go to the north shore of Galilee, out of the way, to find disciples? The answer is really simple. The people living here were the ones most desperate to see the kingdom of heaven come on earth. This is where the zealots were from. This is where the real passionate people. Uh, in Jerusalem, you had many Jews who were just happy with the status quo. Things were going fine. But on the north shore of Galilee were where some of the, the hard um, uh, revolutionaries were. In fact, this is the place you went if you wanted to find someone to disciple you. If you wanted to be a disciple and you were looking for, for a great rabbi, you would go here because this is where the most passionate people were. And when Jesus went for disciples, he went here because these were the people who were looking for the kingdom of heaven. The one person, there was one person he didn't recruit from here. Can you guess who that was? Judas. Judas. I wonder if at some point Judas, because he hadn't understood what he was really being called to, at some point Judas is thinking to himself, this is not panning out how I wanted it. I thought Jesus was going to give me my best life now. This is not exactly what I thought. This is not what exactly I, I signed up for. And he jumped ship. But in actual fact, Jesus is looking for people who will align themselves to him. And faith and joy is not about growing our faith. It's not about how much or the amount of our faith. It's the assimilation of our faith to what Jesus wants to do on the planet. So one of the things we want to do while we're, we're, we're working in our city is being find out what is God doing here? What is God doing in this place? What is God doing in our, in, for those of us who live in Virgin here? What is God doing in Central Arlington? What is God doing? And how do we join that as opposed to, do we just simply go through life asking God to bless our plans? That's one of the driving forces that we have. Um, so... What we have to understand is sometimes our joy is linked to our questions. It says this in that passage. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Um, sometimes I think we ask the wrong question, in my opinion. You can tell me off afterwards, okay? So we ask questions like, um, Lord, what should I do? Lord, where should I go? Lord, what is my ministry? A greater question I want to suggest is this. Lord, what is the best thing I can do to advance your kingdom? What are you doing and how do I get involved in that? So many years ago, over, well, around about 30 years ago, Lynn and I, Lynn's helping in the children's ministry now, but Lynn and I um, started this organization that, that um, um, Mark and Becky are, are part of, which was we wanted to reach into schools. And the question I had in my brain was this. What's the most effective thing we can do to help young people? 
Now, what was happening at the time in Manchester was the strategy was, let's put on smokes, light machines, let's do all this fun, crazy stuff, and let's invite young people in, and we'd probably see 20 or 30 young people come. But I look around and I'm thinking, look at all these schools. There's, there's schools, and they're looking for help, and if we do things appropriately, we can help these schools. So we started this ministry in 1992 called Pays. You'll have seen it on the website. And uh, we started, and our vision was to reach into schools in Manchester. Fast forward 30 years now, and we're in six continents in 14 different nations. But our vision was driven by the question, what, was Jesus, what is Jesus doing? What did Jesus do? What's the most effective thing for his kingdom? So we have this sense of calling which I think is really important. And probably the best understanding of this is when you see Abraham being called. So I don't know if you know the story of Abraham. When he's called, God changes his name. It's really weird. He becomes Abraham. Why? Why change someone's name? What God does is he adds an initial, this is what the rabbis teach, he adds an initial from his name to Abraham's. So Abraham's name becomes Abraham. Does that make sense? And what the rabbis teach is this, is that God was showing Abraham that the journey was not to get to a particular place or a particular target, that vision, the journey of vision is so that during that process, during that journey, God's dream would become his dream. They would be tied together. And I think that's what God has for us. The journey is not that we do something and we ask God to keep blessing it, or if we do the right things, God gives us a nice life. The journey of vision is not what should I do and is that okay? The journey of vision is what are you doing, God? How do we join in with that? How do we pursue your purposes? But sometimes um, maybe we, we miss that a little bit. So just briefly, um, what you're going to see is, is a diagram where we're talking about calling and we're talking about Christ. So I don't know what church you guys came from. We all come from different churches. Um, some of us are Baptists. Some I came from non-denominational churches. Um, I came from a Pentecostal church, boo. Um, so I came from a Pentecostal Now, Pentecostal churches are, I would admit, really weird in my opinion, okay? Weird things happen. So I went to a Pentecostal church, and in the early days, it was very, what we would say, legalistic. There was lots of weird things. So, so girls were not allowed to wear makeup in my church when I was younger. Uh, I grew up in church. In fact, my pastor, when he saw a girl with makeup, he would say, I see you've had your fingers in the devil's jam pot. That's what he would say. And I remember when I, this is really bad, I know, but when I remember when I was 14, I remember thinking, I know it's a sin for some, for, for women to wear makeup, but sometimes looking at them, I think it's a sin for some of them not to wear makeup, <laughs> which is really bad. I would never think that now, okay? But we had some weird stuff going on in that place. And, and if you've ever been in the Pentecostal church, people will stand up and people will, will share, a, a bit like Becky did, you know, she, she had, she felt God put some on her heart and she shared it with us today. But in the old days, we would do something like, someone, you'd be sat in a chair and someone next to you would stand up and say, I am the Lord your God. Do not look to the left or the right. And it was kind of weird for me. I always thought it was strange. So I, I love the fact that I went to Pentecostal church. But I would admit most churches have at least one nutter. You have at least one crazy person. Right, don't look around now. Maybe you've figured out who it is at Saints Church. Most churches have at least one nutter. The fact of the matter is, Pentecostal churches have more nutters on average per square foot than any other type of church. Because you can be crazy but look spiritual. Trust me, I know I'm Pentecostal. But the great thing about our church was this. You would think if you went to that church, they'd talk about crazy stuff all the time. Here's the thing in our church. Every single message 
Everything came back to Jesus. Everything. My, my pastor was obsessed with Jesus. My youth pastor was obsessed with Jesus. The worship was always, always about Jesus. No matter what the subject was, at some point it came back to Jesus. I love that. One day I was in the church and a guy came to tune the piano. Um, and he was, we were just chit-chatting one day because I opened the door for him. And he said, hey, he said, do you, do you know how to tune a hundred pianos together? Because I think he was about to do it or something. I said, I said, no, how? He said, well, there's one way of doing it. And one way of doing it is this. You can press middle C on the first piano and tune the second piano to the first piano. And then the third piano to the second piano. And then the fourth piano to the fifth and, and go all the way. He said, by the time you get to the 100th piano and you press middle C, it'll be completely out of tune with the first piano. He said, so what you have to do is this. Instead, you have to tune the first piano, then tune the second to the first, the third to the first, the fourth to the first, until you get to the 100th. And I remember at the time thinking, Jesus needs to be my first piano. Because I spend so much of my time looking at piano three, piano four, and thinking that's what, that's what Jesus did. But actually, I need to really study the first piano that is actually Jesus. And uh, it says this in that passage. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about these things. So he said to them, are you asking one another? And so much of our time sometimes, and, and maybe why the disciples were going to struggle a bit, is so much of what they were looking at is, what does Christianity look like? Well, it must look at other Christians to find out. We must look at this people. When I came to America, I, I got a few surprises. I worked with lots of different churches. I remember sitting in one church leadership meeting, talking about stuff and thinking, I think this is a different religion. Because in my church, when we discussed what we would do, we would ask the question, did Jesus do this? In this church, we were asking, what do people want? What keeps people in the church? What, get, what makes the numbers better? I'm thinking, this is like a different religion. When I first brought our organization to America, one pastor said this to me, he said, Paul, this is great. If you can make this work, you'll be able to sell this for a million dollars. And I thought, but the kingdom's not a business. It's not, it's not something you sell. It's not something you build to make money. Um, I remember uh, sitting down and, and just having so many conversations and things didn't feel right. So um, do you remember, um, do you remember, oh, do you remember these? Let me remember floppy disks. Do you remember floppy disks? Yeah? So before, uh, before USB, they had floppy disks. Do you remember when floppy disks were actually floppy? Yeah? Okay, remember that. So when I first started working in schools, uh, we had floppy, real, real floppy disks. And I remember um, teaching in schools, young people who didn't understand Jesus and kind of rejected him, I would say to them, you know, it's a bit like, because they would say he can't exist. And I would say, well, it's a bit like you get a floppy disk with a game on it, and it's, really, it's quite a big game, and you put it on your computer that doesn't have enough power to understand that floppy disk. And it doesn't work. So you reject it, and you give it back and say, this disk doesn't work. It's not the disk, it's just that your computer's not powerful enough. So we have a, f a, a finite brain with an infinite God, and you can't always process. So at my house, um, uh, a more modern version might be Xbox and PlayStation. At my house, I have an Xbox purely for medicinal purposes. And, um, and it's like somebody uh, giving me a PlayStation game and me trying to play it on the Xbox. It's not going to work. And sometimes what I found, I'm just gonna be, this is me just bearing my soul, is sometimes over 30 years of working with lots of different churches is you're sharing this thing that works for young people and they don't get it. And the reason they don't get it is we have two different operating systems. Uh, one operating system is 
how do I grow a church? The other operating system is, how do we advance the kingdom? Uh, and the question, I'll just be really honest with you, that we, we have as leaders is the second question. Uh, we're not that interested in how do we build a big church? How do we become famous? You know, how do we get our brand out there? We, we want people to understand the brand so they connect with us. But really, it's about how do we extend the kingdom of God? And the question we're going to be asking all the time is the question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And uh, I would say this, if there's a secret to joy, it's this, that the only person you should compare yourself with is Jesus, and the only person you should compete against is yourself. If you compete against others, you're probably either going to become prideful or come pretty down, you know? Um, but if you, if you compare yourself to Jesus, it's a win-win. Because if you do well and, it, and it, you think, oh, yeah, I did what Jesus did, that's cool. But if you didn't, well, it's Jesus. <laughs> you know, how can you compare yourself to Jesus anyway? But when we compete against other people, and so as a church, we're not looking at other churches thinking what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. We are going to learn from them, but it's not our driving force. Our driving force is going to be asking the question, what did Jesus actually do? I had a friend many years ago, who well, I still have friends now, but I had a friend many years ago uh, called Brooks, he's a speaker. Um, do you remember the, the Columbine disaster where lots of young people were shot and it was awful? Uh, Brooks was the guy who went round afterwards to all the churches with some of the survivors as they showed that they would share their story and then Brooks would preach. So in a year he saw a million students uh, that, that year. And then he came to the youth ministry that we were doing uh, locally. We were helping a, a local youth ministry. And he got on, one he got on the stage once and he said, um, this is one of the top five youth ministries in America. And I went ballistic at him in a nice English way with a smile. So I took him to one side. Mate, you can't say that kind of thing. I said, one, because it, it can't possibly be true. But two, I don't want our team thinking, great, well, if we're one of the top five, we're, done, we're, we're good. I don't want us comparing ourselves to another youth ministry, thinking that's what, we need to just keep looking, what did Jesus do? Are we doing what Jesus did? And like I say, I think this is the most important question that we could ask. If you could just press it one more time, thanks, uh, Ben. If the only person you compare yourself to is Jesus and the only person you compete yourself uh, against is yourself, I think it leads to a fair bit of joy. So uh, just in summary, how do we find joy in Jesus and what are we trying to do as a church? Um, do you remember the old bracelets? Uh, what, would, what would Jesus do? I love them. I think there's a fundamental flaw in the question. but I love the idea. So the question is, what would Jesus do? Here's what I think is the problem. If you ask me, what would Jesus do? I would probably ask you, which Jesus? Like your Jesus or my Jesus? Or Ryan's Jesus? Or Howard's Jesus? Because the reality is we all have a slightly different view of Jesus. And you might not be like me, but I tend to make Jesus do the things that I want him to do. You know, what would Jesus do? Basically, what I would do. A better question might be the question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Because it's harder to, harder to argue. What did Jesus actually do? And so... Um, what we're going to be doing over the next uh, month in November is we're going to be asking ourselves a question, how do we find that out? And we're going to introduce, uh, this is the one bit of vision to share with you, we're going to introduce a different way of doing Bible study. So in November, we're going to have what we call a taster month. Um, and we have this Bible method called Havarim. And it's, uh, we say it's how you can study anything with anyone. 
And um, rather than pushing people's thoughts, rather like I'm doing right now, I'm pushing information onto you. This is a way of equipping the church to study anything, anywhere, at any time in the Word of God. Because what we're more keen for is not that people come and hear a particular preacher. What we're more keen is equipping the saints to understand the Word of God and to be able to share it with others in a really relevant way. So we want to teach you context, how you can find context, how you can understand what Jesus really did, not what just a different church might say he did. And that's going to be really important for us. So just a, a couple of things. Only compare yourself to Jesus in the Bible, not the Jesus in your society. Uh, set goals based on the life of Christ, not the customs of Christianity. Find advisors who point to the life of Christ, not the customs of Christianity. And follow principles of the kingdom you're called to, not the culture you were born in. Here's what I've learned. I'll finish with this thought. So, so Lynn and I run an organization that's international. So that means we have teams in Islamabad and we have teams in Ireland. Uh, we have teams in Vancouver. We have teams in Brisbane. We have teams in Africa. We have teams in Asia. Here's what I've learned. The principles of Jesus work everywhere in the world. So they say that travel broadens your mind. For me, travel's narrowed my mind. I've been around the world twice, and, and travel's narrowed my mind. I've realized the more you can make it like Jesus, the more it works everywhere. If we, if we did something based on just like American culture or British culture and tried to take it somewhere, it'd work in just a couple of nations. But the reality of the fact is this is the more it becomes like Jesus, the more it works everywhere. And I would say that's the same for us in our personal lives as well. So let's just pray. We're going to pray. Thanks, Ryan. Um, so just to, as we begin, I really appreciate everybody. We really appreciate everybody who's come this morning. And we're not always sure what people are expecting. Uh, but what we hope you'll always find is that what we do is the best case the closest we can get to what Jesus did. So, Lord, I just pray right now, you just help us as we think about um, that question, Lord, as we think about what Jesus, what you did on this planet, Lord, that we would align ourselves to you as best as possible. And, Lord, just as we begin to just to worship one more time, I pray, Lord, you would give us just some uh, thoughts about that.